My name is Luke Kurt. Joining me today, I have Dan Pierce. Welcome back, Dan. How's it going? Looking forward to discussing some Iron Fist. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> also joining me today, I have Carly Silver, who is an assistant editor at Harlequin. Welcome, Carly. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with you guys today. Now, you have been a longtime friend of mine and the Daytime Confidential podcast of Jamie on Twitter, and we've interacted a lot over the years, but this is the first time I've actually had a chance to talk to you. So having someone who edits books on the phone or on the show was like, this is a great opportunity to discuss some current and maybe past sci-fi and fantasy book series that you recommend. So what is the hot book that you're reading right now that you think everybody should be checking out? That's a really good question. And I'm always reading like a thousand different things at once between work and what I'm reading for fun. But right now what I'm really loving is a young adult book called The Star-Touched Queen by um, Rakshani Chokshi. It's this unbelievably beautifully crafted, it's sort of like a fairy tale meets like Harry Potter in a way. It's okay. about this, uh, it, it's based on um, Indian mythology, and it's about this young woman who was, um, her horoscope was cursed from birth. Yet, um, she's sort of tasked with helping restore her father's kingdom, but when this handsome prince sweeps her away to the supernatural realm, everything she uh, thought she knew about the world around her is turned upside down. And the world building is incredibly ornate. I say Harry Potter in a way because I've never seen a setting so evocative and so brilliantly written and alive in and of itself since like Hogwarts in a way. Okay. Because I'm just, you know, I remember rewatching all movies and rereading the books, but it's set and it's all inspired by Indian mythology and the, the, it's so ornate and detailed and beautifully crafted that I'm just, you know, parsing through it page by page and I'm going slowly because I want to, I want to, with every single page i want it to sort of sink in and it's so beautifully written i know a lot of people may or may not read ya because it's labeled young adult but you know this is this is a story that's you know the heroine happens to be 17 but it's so incredibly written that i recommend it for all ages and that's one thing that i i'm reading now that i just can't get enough of I am a huge YA fan. The majority of the books that I read are actually YA fantasy and sci-fi series. But I also enjoy a good old, thick, regular sci-fi series or sci-fi or fantasy oh, book as well. Dan, what is what is a book that you would recommend? Um, well, for me personally, I'm I'm about to uh, kind of reread an old favorite in preparation for its upcoming adaption into a television series. And that is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Okay. That that book really, really inspired me a lot when I was in college and stuff. We read it for um, a literature course. And as an English major, I was just blown away um, by the rich detailing of just all of the mythology and the the conflicts that the main character shadow had to go through in learning about you know wars between different gods and how it translates into the modern world and just all of this different kind of meshing of cultures and rules of war and stuff like that it's just it's really interesting and i i found shadow to be like the most compelling individual character and i'm really looking forward to seeing the show i know that they changed up a lot of things because 
I know they want to incorporate some of Neil Gaiman's other works of literature, um, as well as changing things up due to uh, current political climates and stuff like that. That was recently announced uh, this past week that some there were some changes due to that. Um, but I'm still interested in rereading the book um, in preparation for the new star show in April. See, and I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen the trailers. The trailers look fantastic. I am so on board for this TV series, but I'm really, I'm really scared to go back and read a book because I've found in the past when TV series are adapted with maybe the exception of game of Thrones, which I, in this case I hadn't read beforehand. So I was perfectly okay with everything that happened in game of Thrones. Cause I was just along for the ride. But when I read the books before they're adapted, invariably I'm disappointed with the show. So I'm like, do I really want to go and read this book before the TV series comes out? And that is a difficult decision for me. And it's sort of just become one of those things where since I haven't read it already, I think I'm going to go with the TV show so I don't have to be upset about anything. Carly, has there ever been a, a book adaptation to a television show that just really disappointed you? Oh, definitely. And one last thing I wanted to mention, I accidentally mispronounced the author's first name. It's Roshani. Okay. It's Roshani um, Turkshi was. So um, definitely. I, I'm also a big historical fiction reader. Okay. And um, Philippa Gregory, who wrote like all those great Tudor books, wrote like the other Boleyn Girl and stuff like that. There was an adaptation that was done of, um, of her series called, I think it was The White Princess, or it was The White Queen. One of her books had a television adaptation and the other Boleyn Girl was also adapted for movies. And I found them historically not so accurate, but incredibly engaging as romantic historical fiction. Okay. And I thought, unfortunately, all of those were real letdowns compared to the author's compelling style because she's not like she, she's she manages to go light on some of the history, but make the stories incredibly passionate and engaging. And I've been thus far disappointed by all of the adaptations I've seen of her stuff. And there's a stars actually has a new series coming out. Um, it's either, I think, I think it's the white princess. The white queen was the one they did before in mid May. And I'm no, in mid April. And I'm really hoping that it's going to be a little better because it's hard to get, she serves as a consultant on the series. And I find that it's hard to get that the, if the author isn't writing the script, it's hard to get, that same kind of voice that the reader really fell in love with into the characters. So I'm hoping that maybe they, and I understand that it's probably not ideal for in every case for someone to be, to have the author writing the script, but I'm hoping they maybe let her have a little more creative control this time around, because that for me was really what it was her take on uh, history that really made it so great. And what's so funny is you meant, I'm so excited Dan and Luke also about American gods and I'm a British soap junkie. So the, the star of the show is um, Ricky Whittle, who was on Hollyoaks in England. And, and that's sort of where he cut his teeth. And that's like my, that's my, my show. Like the way Jamie has Emmerdale, that's my British show. Okay. And <laughs> See, and really for me, funny. for me, I didn't watch him on that soap, but I watched him on the primetime soap 
course it slips my mind, but he played a soccer star. He was a David Beckham type basically on the show. So if you're ever looking for a primetime soap, I'd have to look the name back up because I'm pretty sure it wasn't Footballer Wives. It wasn't Footballer Wives. I think it was maybe Dream Team. I would have to look that back up. I'm really looking forward to seeing him because he was also in the 100 in the first season of the or first and second seasons of the 100, I believe. And so I'm I'm really interested in seeing how this goes. And Carly, since you're into American Gods and there's going to be another series that's being adapted to On Stars, we'll have to have you c- come back and discuss them once they've premiered. Oh, I love that. Well, well, I'm at it. I should just ask, do you watch Outlander then? I have watched Outlander, and I think it's a lot of fun. I'm, you know, it's sort of hard to, to not get addicted to shows like that in a really great way. And I will, I generally like will binge watch it towards the end of the season. So I think the third season's about to premiere, I think in the fall. So just, like, I'd like to really be up on it before the next season starts up. So maybe in September, I'll, I'll um, watch the whole thing. I'm a sucker for anything Scottish. So Me too. I was definitely, uh, oh, it's so, I mean, there's just something, that accent is a killer for me, but and there's a lot of Scottish romance. So I don't, I haven't edited any um, myself as of late, but you know, there it's it's really fun, and I think that Diana Gabaldon has a really good grasp of history, and she manages to make the time jumps both in the they do it really well on the show and in the books, really believable as much as you know it can be given it it's historical fantasy. But, I mean, the books are, they're definitely thick, but like a Game of Thrones book, it's just, you'll fall into it and you don't want to leave. Awesome. Well, as someone whose last name is Scottish and who had to wear a kilt at his brother's wedding, I am right there (laughs) with you when it comes to Scottish stuff. I'm always fascinated by it. My first recommendation would actually be by author Karen Miller. She has a series called the Godspeaker series, um, which is basically three titles, The Emperors of... Mijak, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. When you read something, you don't always know if you how you are reading it is how the author intended it to be pronounced. Um, but it's the Empress oh yeah, of, it's the Empress of Mijak, uh, the Riven Kingdom, and the Hammer of God. And the first, what I love about this series is the first story or the first book is told told from the standpoint of a girl who starts out a slave and rises to become an empress. In the first book. It's also much, very much a Middle Eastern desert empire type story. So you have a lot of the Middle Eastern motifs, which I really liked. Uh, in the second book, which is The Riven Kingdom, it tells the story from the perspective of Rian, who is a princess who basically takes over her father's throne when he passed away. You still get... Uh, the story, like the story from the Mijak Empire, because you're now seeing what her the the Empress's sons are going through, and how their empire is slowly creeping towards the Riven Kingdom. So in the second book, you have Rian, who's dealing with dukes and all this stuff in a very European type society, and you have this creep of Middle Eastern towards them, which, from a historic parallels, there's been that in the past. And so by time you get to the Hammer of God, you have these two societies that are basically clashing and I really like how Miller has brings those three together I'm a big fan of hers I think I've read almost every single one of her series though I haven't read like she also wrote some of like you know how they'll commission Star Wars books and things I haven't read those but anything that she's written under her name or her pen names 
I've re- read and I thoroughly enjoy them. Carly, what's another book that you would recommend that people check out, whether it's current or past? I have to say, I grew up reading Anne McCaffrey and uh, her Dragon Riders of Pern series, which is a science fiction classic. And it's, it's sci-fi light. It, it's, it's a little more fantasy than science fiction, but it's so incredibly engaging. And it's, it starts out with a very sort of typical, hero, you know, young woman um, finding her power via dragons, which I feel like is, has been done since then. But it's, uh, it takes place on um, another planet in which this parasite, this silvery parasite falls from the sky called Thread. And over time, um, engineers on the planet have genetically developed dragons that can spout flame if they eat a particular stone to kill the parasite before it hits the ground. So it would basically consume the entire Earth if it was allowed to fall to the ground. And these dragons have riders, and they create these uh, mental bonds that's called, um, that's called impression. And the story, the first book starts off, um, the first book is Dragonflight. It starts off with uh, Thread, this parasite has been gone for several hundred years, and everyone thinks that it's never coming back. The weirs, which are the homes of the dragons, and they're sort of like their own little fiefdoms, have been allowed to fall into disrepair, and only one of the original six is left. And there's one dragon rider at the weir that remains that thinks that Thread is coming back. And as the book opens, we see a servant. Actually, it's funny because you're mentioning that the Karen Miller series also has a girl going from a servant or slave status to high rank. That's sort of a similar theme here. The the heroine, Lessa, starts out as a servant in uh, in a hold, which is like a, uh, a manor. And she winds up progr- getting, I'm not going to want to uh, reveal too much, but she winds up getting involved in weird politics and ends up um, really involved with the dragons. And, of course, when Thread, this parasite, comes back, she ends up being one of the only ones that uh, can help save the planet that she lives on. It's really very – got such a great hero's journey, in this case, heroine's journey. There's dragons. There's emotion. There's world-saving. There's no magic. But, I mean, it's basically magic in the guise of science in this particular case. Because everything is, has like evolved over generations, but it's you know they never explain science so fully that it would actually make sense. And it, it's the author builds a world that is eminently believable, and it's what I, it's, it was one of my first introductions into the genre. And it's still you know I was like a member of the author's fan forum back in the day, and I'm still just I mean and. and over time, as I grew up, you realize that some of the stuff the author wrote in the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, was problematic and definitely were she to write it now, that would, you know, she, there would, stuff that would be needed definitely would need to be revised. But she, uh, she was a pioneer in the field in terms of breaking in, uh, breaking down doors for women in science, female authors in science fiction and fantasy. And the world that she created still is one that sticks with me. Well, what I'm going to have both of you guys do is shoot me an email of your list so we can make sure that we include those in the post when I put this live so that if anybody wants to check out the series, they'll be able to click on all the links and get more information on them. Dan, what is your second recommendation? My next recommendation and like the next few that I have are all by the the same author, essentially. I am a huge, huge fan of uh, Junot Diaz, who... um, his first book, uh, Drown, 
is essentially about drug use. Like, it, it it's kind of like watching the show Legion where you're not sure what's actually happening in the plot because things don't really make sense. Yep. And everything's kind of loosely tied together by, like, a really paper-thin storyline, and it's just kind of about drugs. So this is the this is the book version of that. I have a friend who watches Legion. He goes, Luke, you need to watch it so we can discuss it. And I'm like, I finally got caught up. And I, he says, don't you love it? And I'm like, it's okay, but I it's too hazy for me. I need a little bit more clarity in my TV, but I digress. Go ahead with your recommendation. In terms of that book, that, that was kind of one of his first uh, forays into the literary realm. Uh, the book he's uh, known for is more geared toward being a nerd in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, plays a big role in this book. It is The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Um, it won a Nobel Laureate in, I believe, 2006. Um, but it's it's a classic book. Uh, it has elements of fantasy in mythology um there there's a myth in uh many hispanic cultures about hexes and curses and stuff and um there you get to see this journey with uh this family and you see three generations of how um this curse or lack of curse or whatever uh affects their family and how they move forward in their own future um it's really interesting it's really compelling um the thing about juno diaz when he writes he leans into the realism and it kind of any of the elements of the fantastical like curses or hexes or anything of that sort is really ingrained in something that you can relate to as reader because you know there are problems especially for us who watch soaps where it's like, okay, all of these crazy situations, I've seen this storyline play out three different ways. Yep. Um, but, yeah, no, I would highly recommend uh, checking those two out. My second recommendation is um, a series, it's called The Chronicles of the Unhewn Throne by Brian Stavely. The first book is The Emperor's Blade. With a lot of science fiction and fantasy, at least that I've read, it tends to be Eurocentric in whether it is the setting, whether it is the spell casting, whatever the case may be. What I love about his series is that it's the story of three siblings and it's set in sort of a China, Chinese meets Mongol atmosphere where you definitely have Mongol type races, a, a race, and then you have sort of a Chinese style empire. And it's these three siblings. One is sent off to be a monk because he has golden eyes, which means that he should be the king. There is the the sister, the middle child, who is basically has no hope of being empress, but she is probably the person who is best um, qualified to be it. And then there's the oldest son who was sent off to um, train with the elite um military unit one of the things that really captured my imagination in this series was not just the mythology that they created but also how they as someone who has three younger brothers he did a fantastic job of ha 
building the arcs for each of these characters and then being at cross purposes for almost the entire series, even though they were all trying to reach the same destination in many um, instances, not always, but many. And it really fascinated me how he did it because each of these people would do things that normally they wouldn't want to do, especially potentially against a sibling, but because they're trying to reach this goal, they do it. And I think that he really built that well. Um, the other reason why I mention it is because on April 25th, he's going to have a book that's set in that world for with one of the characters that's in the trilogy called Skull. And um, that book is called Skull Sworn. And so that's going to be coming out in April. And I'm really looking forward to that as well. Carly, what's your third recommendation? My third recommendation veers a little bit from sci-fi fantasy, but it's just one of my favorites, so I couldn't resist. It's the Marcus Didius Falco series by Lindsay Davis. So I'm a big ancient history nerd, and this was one of my favorite historical fiction reads. It's actually a mystery series. There are about 20 books in it, and but it's so drop, like drop dead funny at the same time. The author manages to make the ancient world and ancient Rome very accessible. You really see the protagonist is sort of like a down on his luck PI that everything goes wrong for. And he's very poor and he's always sort of struggling to pay the bills, which, you know, is, is a very, Lord knows, it's a very relatable year um, to have, especially, you know, living in New York, I could understand his predicaments with uh, his, you know, the rent and everything like that. And he winds up meeting in the first book, he winds up meeting this beautiful young aristocratic girl that he falls for who ends up being murdered, which is not really a spoiler because it happens within the very, uh, very soon within the first book. And he ends up drawn into this sort of senatorial uh, upper class uh, dispute. And it sort of follows that he's a fish out of water and he's just got the author gives him the driest sense of humor and you really see Rome not as this great city of marble, which it wouldn't necessarily have been in that time, but um, really as a city like any other city. And there are great emotional arcs throughout the books. And there's, you know, there's a couple to root for and there's a good amount of romance, but there's also great tragedy. There's really, it's a really beautifully balanced mystery series. And I think that it's one of the mystery series that isn't just for fans of mystery or, or historical fiction, anybody could really read it and love it. And the first book in that is The Silver Pig. And I'll leave you to read it and hopefully you'll figure out, I mean, you'll figure out soon uh, why uh, it's given that title. There are no actual pigs involved, but it's... Darn it's, it's it, I needed great. to see a silver pig. Hey, you know what? It's entirely possible. You Google silver pig, I'm sure you'll find it. Or a pig <laughs> that is uh, made out of silver, but... It's just, it's a really great, uh, really great read. Okay. Dan, what's your third recommendation? Well, fourth recommendation, actually, with all of those. Um, I'll probably go with uh, the most recent uh, Juno Diaz book. is called uh, This Is How You Lose Her. Um, it is a collection of short stories based on uh, kind of the relationships uh, that we kind of have throughout our lives, whether it's romantic relationships or like friendships or interpersonal relationships with your family and how it, it's kind of a progression um, 
they they all loosely tie together thematically, but none of and Junotia does this thing in between basically every book or short story where he re, he reuses names so often that it actually makes everything really confusing and people try and piece it together and then it turns into like one of those boards where there there's yarn tying things together it just it's a whole thing um but it is it's incredibly interesting incredibly fascinating and um i would highly encourage people to kind of check it out especially if they're into short stories because i know a lot of people might not be like totally 100% in for a long drawn out novel, but if they can get it in incremental bites, you know, they're still consuming, uh, you know, literature in that respect. So I, I would highly encourage people to, you know, explore more short story literature. I, I must admit when it comes to short stories, I have a love-hate relationship with them because most of the time, most of the time when I've read them, it was in Louis L'Amour westerns. And when I was yeah. as a kid, when I was reading uh, short stories, I I wasn't reading them intentionally. Like I would want to get a Louis L'Amour book, and it would be at the gas station or whatever, and so I grab one off the shelf, and I wouldn't have time to really look at and realize what it was. So I was expecting to read this story about a Louis L'Amour character, and then it ends up being a short story. And I'm like, damn it, I do not want to be reading short stories. And I love Louis L'Amour, but I'm just not a short story person, at least a compilation person. So maybe I'll have to give that a try to get a taste of the series. We'll see. Um, Absolutely. My recommendations, uh, earlier Carly mentioned YA, and I am a big fan of YA. I like YA fantasy, YA um, dystopian, sci-fi, pretty much across the board. I'm not, even though I enjoy reading romance novels from time to time, I'm not necessarily a teen romance person just for that story. But when it comes to sci-fi and fantasy, I would highly recommend reading Morgan Rhodes' The Falling Kingdom series. She's on like book five or something like this at this point and what i what i love about this one and the one that i'm going to be bringing up next is the cliffhangers every book every book when you just think oh it's gonna wrap up it's gonna wrap up and they're gonna get their happily ever after or whatever it's going to be they add throw something in at the very last minute and then you're off and you're waiting for another book and so the falling kingdom series definitely recommend it Sarah Moss's Throne of Glass series is amazing. What I love about that series is the first book, The Throne of Glass, starts out as this small series or small character arc. And you have hints of like this bigger story that's out there, but they don't get distracted by it. And so you have this character who was an assassin who was um, at one point in slave pits, and now she's basically fighting for her life. And... As the story expands in each book that follows, it just becomes this epic story, and it is fantastic. She just released um, a book in September, and there now we have to wait till 2018 for the next book in the series. The friend who I was talking to about Legion, he was like, hey, do you have a recommendation for a good audiobook I could listen to that's like sci-fi and fantasy? And I said, well, check out Throne of Glass. So he started listening to it, and he was like, I'm hooked. It was, he loved it, absolutely loved it. Yeah. And the great thing about 
uh, what Sarah has done is that in addition to her series, she has like three or four novellas that are prequels to the actual series that give more history on it. So I've read all the prequels, read everything in the series, absolutely love it. Um, the third one that I was going to recommend for a YA series is actually sort of a futuristic dystopian it's by Jennifer Brody, and she's actually going to be on the podcast next week, along with Carly and a couple other guests when we have um, the Exploring Female Geekdom episode. And so we'll uh, have an opportunity for her to talk more about her series. But it is basically about Earth and American society and human society where there is a an a, apocalyptic event that is basically going to destroy Earth. So in order to survive it, they have ha call, um, set up, humans have set up these things called continuums. Some are like buried in the ground miles below. Some are at the bottom of the ocean. There's a couple in space. There's one near Mars. I believe there's one near Mars. I could be wrong on that. I forget. But basically, and they these are these societies that are supposed to be living in these environments for like a thousand years. And what for me when I was reading the book before you even get to the story of the hero whose name is Myra Jennifer has set up and tells the story because Myra is um, lives in a continuum that's at the bottom of the ocean and but the book doesn't start with her the book starts with the daughter of the president of the United States and as the, her and her family are like fleeing the White House because it's basically they have to get to the continuum for it to be submerged, it's that moment. So you start with this daughter of the president and you follow her. And then what Jennifer does is she tells the story of what happens between the this girl and a thousand years later, or how many ever years later, when Myra... Is we pick up on Myra's story and how the society goes from having the president of the United States and it being a democratic society in this continuum to one that is transitioned to a, a like a religious dominated one where you have um, a council of religious people who are basically controlling everything and how a lot of the rights and protections that you have have been stripped away. And now it is very much a society that has superstitions based on religious dogmas. And that's just like the transition to get to the main story. And I was so like astounded by how she did it. I thought she did it really well. And so the primary um, story in the first book, The 13th Continuum, is about Myra. But you also get to see what is happening in one of the space continu um, continuums which had a very military-based um, society because that was one where a lot of the military personnel went in space. And so I would highly recommend checking it out. She's probably going to do a fantastic, much better job of um, describing it than I will. But if you're looking for something dystopian that is a tie between the present and the future, I would definitely recommend it. Did you guys have any other um, series that you'd recommend before we move on, Carly? Yeah, well, it's so funny you were mentioning, you might have heard me just sort of like chorusing in the background about how much I love Sarah Moss's series. I'm actually only two books in, but I'm like savoring each one as I go along because I know that she's not going to, like, she's not putting out any books for a little more while. So I'm trying to, I think there are like three or four more before uh, the next one. So I'm slowly pacing myself, but she, she manages to do epic fantasy and justice in a way that's new and interesting. Because there is so much YA fantasy that's out, and you know, even just trying to look at 
whether you you're walking to a bookstore as or you're looking at it at what's coming out as an editor or or a reader there's so much now where 10 15 years ago there YA was still a genre that was not even a genre still an area that was relatively underpopulated I remember when I was growing up and that was exactly the kind of story that I was looking for it wasn't really available when I was of that age so there can be so many fantasy stories out there and it's so hard to wade through them to find what you like what you don't like or what's even worth reading and this is something that it just is so captivating the world building is really interesting there is a love triangle which is something that I feel can be a little too cliche for a lot of YA stories but she manages to pull it off in my opinion and I that I mean I'm like I said I'm pacing myself so no spoilers I won't um, spoil anything for you I, I totally agree that that is awkward, but that goes that that awkwardness goes away, shall we say? It it does, and I'm actually I've got the um, the uh, Morgan Road series on my to read list. I've also grew up reading Tamara Pierce, who uh, is sort of one of the pioneers in writing uh, female driven YA fantasy. She's um, writes really kick ass heroines. Like she wrote her book, first book was Alana: The First Adventure, which was about a uh, young woman in a fantasy kingdom that wanted to become a knight, but they weren't allowed at the time. So she dressed as a boy and went basically undercover to work as a knight. And her, you know, some of her heroes and heroines have magic, but what's really great about the way she writes her characters is that everyone has to work really hard for what they got. You know, some, sometimes they're, they have, you know, like extra abilities or something that makes stuff easier. But in a couple notable examples, they're like, you know, one heroine in one series actually doesn't have any magic and she's very awkward and she wants to become a knight a different uh it's a different character than the first series but it's just there are a lot of basically like fight montages of her training really really hard and i think that taking the time to draw out that kind of character development and something that's really realistic especially for you know if you're looking at a teen audience that if where you really got uh them in a formative period in their lives showing that sort of hard work ethic in a character where it's not just, you know, like a cut scene and they've won the competition or whatever the, the thing at stake might be. It's really great. And I think that that always has grounded her characters in a lot more of a realistic way for me as a reader. And I remember picking uh, her books up as a kid and just really falling in love. And the other YE series that I'm really loving now is the Court of Five series from Kate Elliott. Uh, she it's sort of set in like an ancient Egyptian inspired world. It's the heroine is uh, half of she's biracial and she her father is a uh, from the conquering class that came in and and um, took over this particular land and her mother is um, of an indigenous population of this land. So she's always been torn both ways and they're not legally married because it's not for it's currently prohibited and she wants to run basically be a professional athlete and run the fives which is this incredibly intricate um course that's a i can't even really describe it it would be like some very intense olympic olympic game and the author kate elliott does a really beautiful job of describing uh her working to train in secret and it's again sort of like a there's some fight montages but at the same time there's all of this class warfare and all of this really well drawn out political tension and there is some romance but it's it's definitely a uh a very nuanced 
portrayal of uh, a young woman who is charged with a great responsibility and has a lot of talent, but also makes mistakes. And I think that you can often get, you know, an all too perfect hero or heroine in uh, in a book, regardless of the genre. And uh, we see Jess, who's the heroine, really, you know, screw up sometimes and also be really do outstandingly other times. And I really love following her adventures. The first book is Court of Five. And um, uh, the third book is, the final book is coming out this summer. And I am on pins and needles and I cannot wait. It's really just, it's one of my favorite series that's come out uh, in the past couple of years. And uh, I am on tenterhooks waiting for the third book to find out what happens. Dan, before I get to your final recommendation, um, earlier we I touched on the fact that sometimes TV and film um, adaptations aren't that awesome. There is no better example, recent example of that than The Mortal Instruments, which is a fantastic series. The world building that Cassandra Clare does in that, in that book, the, the characters are some of my favorites. The movie was awful, and I hate watch Shadowhunters TV on ABC Family because it is just unbelievably bad. But I can't stop watching because I love the book series so much I hate watch the TV series. What, <laughs> what is your final recommendation? Typically, when I'm uh, when I'm kind of reading for fun because of the intensity of uh, writing and working and doing the editing stuff, I I kind of go a little old school. So I'm gonna throw out a uh, like a more historical based one. Um, I'm I've really started reading a lot of um, Walls Thurman, uh, Infants of the Spring in particular. I I really diving into uh, Harlem Renaissance literature and learning more um, about the the art and different cultural aspects that we got to see a lot of in television shows like Luke Cage, but getting to see it from like the, the 1910s, the 1900s, the 1920s, the, the era in which they, all of those um, cultural nuances of Luke Cage came from. Um, And it's, it's really interesting. It's about um, a, a building where all of these artists and poets and writers and painters and all of these different artisans all live in the same building and watching their lives develop and their art develop and their relationships develop. And it's just, it, it's a really character driven, powerful story uh, that I would highly encourage. I'm, I'm kind of old school when it comes to a lot of my uh, recommendations. I kind of majored in romantics poetry in Britain from uh, 1896 to, or I'm sorry, 1798 to 1806. So I'm I'm not the best when it comes to recommending modern stuff, but um, yeah, no. But uh, you could you could recommend a Mean Jane Austen. Is that it? Yes, I I. I know my way around Jane Austen. I know my way around uh, Emily Bronte and uh, all of the Bronte sisters, really. Um, William Dan, you might want to stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Wait a second here. (laughs) No, go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. There's actually a um, a Bronte series, uh, Bronte sisters series that's going to be coming out. Is there? Yes, it's supposed to be called... 
to walk invisible. I think it's going to be on a masterpiece on PBS. Oh, very nice. I will be checking awesome. that out. I will be checking that out. Carly, um, in our correspondence prior to the podcast, uh, when I was discussing with you topics, and you said that you were really passionate about own voices, which was something that I was not familiar with. But upon doing research, it looks like it might have started out as a social media campaign. Tell me a little bit about this and why it's important to you and how it's an impact your field in editing of books. Sure. So Own Voices is a campaign that was started by um, a middle grade and YA, YA author named Corinne Doivich. And it was a push starting on social media, I think around fall 2015, about um, recommending literature about diverse characters written by authors from that same diverse group. So the idea, it, it's very much in tandem with uh, what's developed from We Need Diverse Books and calling for um, diverse representation from a diverse group of authors and editors. And one of the great things I think about Twitter for me is that it's been a really great place for me to listen and learn. So, you know, whether it's following authors or activists or editors or, you know, just individuals in the, in the publishing community and without, I've been able to learn and be edu and educate myself about what concerns people have, what I can do better to be a better ally, both as an individual human being and, um, you know, and as an editor within publishing to use whatever platform I may have to, um, you know, help better represent the world at large in uh, for the Harlequin reader and in the Harlequin book and, and within Harlequin books. So I think that it's something that I'm really passionate about, about, again, listening and learning and seeing what, um, you know, acquiring more diverse voices for our series program, which that's something we're all definitely committed to. But I know that that is a that's something I'm really working on. And I'm fortunate to work with so many great authors um, right now. And I'm always, you know, on the lookout for great, you know, diverse romances and I you know something I've really tried to I'm really looking forward to acquiring more of and there's a great uh hashtag there's a lot of good publishing hashtags um there's a particularly good one in addition to own voices and we need diverse books called manuscript wishlist which is just hashtag mswl and that's where editors and agents can put out calls for things they're looking for so you know I'm always looking for romance but for example you know if there's you know a I'm, I saw something on Twitter the other day about there's a group of female African-American cowgirls, basically. They're rodeo riders. And that's like that. I would love to see that in, in a romance because we do. We publish a lot of Western. But I'd love to see, you know, um, an African-American or black off and black um, authors that, you know, they're definitely people would be interested in writing about that. I'd love to acquire and edit something like that. You know, being able to open up, like I said, you know, use whatever platform I may have or you know, make it clear that I'm something I'm definitely interested in acquiring and, and rounding out our, our continue, continuing to round up the list of authors that I work with so that, you know, we can get, have characters that are more representative of everybody and, you know, authors that are, because the authors are writing this stuff already. It's for, you know, some haven't been given a platform. And I think that there are so many talented authors out there, so many stories that, haven't been told or haven't been given the authors haven't been given the room to tell them on the same platforms in general. So I think Twitter for me has been a really great tool to educate myself about what I can do to be a better editor and just a better personal girl. And I think that hashtags like that were, have been a particularly great source of 
uh, great information. And it's really amazing what the author community has done with hashtags like that and movements online. I mean, they're incredibly involved. For example, um, there's a, a literary agent named Beth Phelan uh, who runs a pitch contest on Twitter. Or it's not even a contest. It's more of like a pitch uh, forum on, a, on particular days. It's called DV Pit. And it's for authors who um, are pitching diverse stories or also authors of those diverse backgrounds can pitch uh, story in, in 140 characters or fewer, can pitch a, uh, a story to you know, a group of editors and agents who are generally be looking through the feed. And, you know, she will earmark a couple, you know, maybe one or two days every couple months for that. And there have been a lot of acquisitions that have been made that way. And I think that the fact, you know, she puts in so much effort and so much time to be able to organize this event and, fig, you know, figuring out the parameters. And I think she just put together a raffle for a critique from a literary agent. And it's such a, she's done such an incredible job of adding another, uh, and adding another platform or another way for authors and agents and editors to connect and for those stories to be told that really they need to be told and should be told and, and, um, it's also it's a great way for editors like myself to be able to see what people are writing about, what what kinds of stories. Because I can put out you know a manuscript wish list for something, but if someone's interested in writing about that, well, then I also want to see what they are interested in writing about, or what stories that authors of you know varied backgrounds are interested in telling, and how you know I can help give those stories a home. Reading the hashtag, it was it was really fascinating to look through what people are commenting and. Yeah what people are looking for and what authors are saying, we need more of this or we need more of that. And you get to learn so much because I admit for myself, when you are on social media or you're going into the bookstore, a lot of times you will be looking for things that maybe reflect things that you already think about, or you're maybe looking for stories that you may already be somewhat like the format or whatever may be something that you're already familiar with. And so when you get to see these other pieces or works being promoted or talked about, it definitely gives opens up the world. And that's what a book is supposed to do, open you up to new worlds. And that's what I really enjoyed when I was going through um, the Twitter feed and just reading what people were putting out there. I thought it was it's really interesting, and it's one that I'm going to have to follow more closely. Well, it's really down to a lot of the author community. What they do is, is unbelievable, and the advocacy that they're putting forth, and they're um, like I know there's a new imprint. I think it's at Simon, it's at Simon and Schuster. That's a um, imprint dedicated to um, publishing children's books by and about by Muslim authors about Muslim characters to you know promote a um, you know to hopefully combat Islamophobia for future generations and to get positive representations out there. It's called Salam Reads, and they just published. I think their first book is just coming out. And it's called um, Amina's Voice. Uh, and it's, you know, things like that can help hopefully change the toxic culture of, you know, of racism, hopefully going forward. I mean, Lord knows that we as a country have so much work to do, but being able to pre- allow children to not only see positive representations of other people, but for kids that don't see themselves in books or in movies or, or whatever medium you may prefer to be able to see themselves in that way. I, you know, I can only, you know, it's, it's such an incredible thing. And I, you know, hats off to them for doing that. And there's also, especially romance is a particularly devoted group of authors and they're really wonderful. And there's, um, 
a great blog called Women of Color and Romance, run by an author named Rebecca Witherspoon, who is really it's devoted to promoting works of women of color, whether traditionally published, self-published, any number of ways in romance fiction in general. And she is a tireless advocate for diversity in romance, both in terms of um, characters and authors. And she just does an amazing job of putting together a blog and really, like, she does a digital book club. And this is, this is all, you know, if you want to follow these people on Twitter, I definitely recommend it. It's really, you know, there's, she, I, I get, have out, like, a whole to-read list just from, like, her most recent list of stuff that's out this month. And I, she's always got a really great list of great recommended reads. We will definitely link to that in the comments as well. It's sort of interesting that uh, the own voices is going to make for a segue to our uh, last topic, uh, Marvel premiered Iron Fist on um, Netflix, and this is a character that w originally originated in the comics, and back in 1974, it's a white guy who's learning kung fu and then comes back, and he, it's it it hasn't had the greatest critic. Uh, reception in part because of the white savior thing I, there unfortunately with the comics there's not really much or like there's not much of a way to get around that because the character is the character he's been for around for so long you can try and modernize it but dan and i were texting before the podcast and he goes i can't decide if this is a good show or not and i said i agree but i think the best way to describe it is that it's awkward Dan, you've watched more episodes of Iron Fist than I have. Yes. Uh, what are what are your thoughts? Is it as bad as the critics say, or is it um, better than that? What are your thoughts on the episodes you've watched? It's a problematic show. Um, the best, like, heading into the show, there were a lot of issues in regards to, like, a lot of people saw what Marvel did with Luke Cage, and they were like, Hopefully they could, you know, change the conversation when it comes to Iron Fist and cast a um, an Asian American uh, or just Asian uh, actor to play the role of Danny Rand. And you could keep the character the exact same way, but just having that level of representation would help kind of bridge some of the uh, cultural strife that has existed within people who have followed iron fist comics and the character of danny rand since the 70s um it didn't happen uh finn jones was cast and so there's been a lot of backlash even while it was shooting even while they're promoting it um you know finn jones went on record uh talking about how Yes, there there's problems with that, but there there's so many other bigger problems in the world kind of type conversation. And then Iron Fist show creator Joe Thomas recently did an interview with Inverse Entertainment at Inverse.com uh, where he told the reporter Caitlin Bush uh, flat out that he doesn't have time for the uh, cultural appropriation comments and the argument – and he used one particular um, word that has not been used to describe uh, people of Asian descent in probably 40 to 60 years. And 
he said after that sentence that that was the wrong word for it, but it still uh, set a tone, you know, with the show debuting that me going into the show, is just kind of like, oh, this isn't going to be good. This is going to be bad. And like from from a show perspective, just knowing all of that, putting that aside for one second, going into it um, there. This show has some problems in its dialogue and the way characters don't have any sort of level of emotional maturity in their decision-making. Like, they don't talk to each other. They don't solve their problems. They don't respond to what the other is saying with any sort of, like, logic. They all have their own agenda and don't really listen to one another. And it it's really... It's used to drag out the, the, the show in a necessary amount of episodes in the beginning, and I could see that really turning away people. Plus, there's the angle of, like, this is kind of Batman Green Arrow-esque of, like, oh, rich guy gets stranded in a place, has to learn to survive. True, we- but in their defense, that's pretty much every major comic book character ever, for like, in terms of the classics. I mean, how many people, rich guy who gets stranded on something and then has to learn how to fight through it, you know? Oh, no, I, I agree completely. I'm just saying that could be a level of reasoning for a lot of people to be turned off by it, you know? Yeah. Um, but in terms of the actors themselves, Finn Jones does a good job. Um, the actress who plays um, Colleen Wing, she Jessica does a Henwick? fan. J- Jessica Henwick. Yes. She does a fantastic job, but you and I need to talk about Tom Pelfrey for a hot second. And we have to discuss Marie Bartlett too. Uh, Carly, did you, Carly, did you watch Guiding Light? I watched it a little bit towards the end, and I remember Tom Pelfrey, and I remember him being sort of someone to keep an eye on in terms of just really everything. He was one of those ones that you could really see would be going on to big things. He won a couple uh, daytime Emmys, didn't he? Yes, he did. I'm, before we get to Tom Pelfrey, Dan, I'm going to give my follow-up just sort of as a segue into it. Um, okay. From a standpoint of the series itself, um, setting aside the controversy regarding the all the white savior issues that it it can't really avoid, part of the problem with this series is that it's slow. Luke Cage was slow, but the cinematography and the score and everything like that was so amazing that you could it and it, you it felt like it was building that you could look past it. This series seems to try and take the slowness of Luke Cage and draw things out. It doesn't have the intensity of Daredevil. I never feel like Danny is ever as in danger as uh, Daredevil is. And it doesn't have the character depth of, say, like a Jessica Jones. And so you have this series that is trying to be all three of the ones that have come before it and doesn't do any of it well. If they had combined the first and second episodes they into like one and made things move more quickly, it could have probably done much better. You already pointed out the fact that the script is really lacking. They don't have a lot of depth to these characters. 
the character of Colleen, in my opinion, when I f was first watching, I only was able to watch the first two episodes. And in those, I thought that Tom Pelfrey was the most dynamic. I wasn't really that into Danny Rand. As the series has gone on, that character has improved for me. But in the first two episodes, Tom Pelfrey was the reason that I was sticking with it. As the episodes have progressed, it's Jessica Henwick's Colleen that I'm most interested in. But it really wasn't until episode four or five when Rosario Dawson returned and reprised her role as Claire that it sort of started to click for me personally. And this series doesn't have like its own identity cinematically. It doesn't have its own identity with the fight sequences because Luke Cage is very much different than Daredevil. This just sort of seems to, once again, we have Asian triad like ninjas, and it it just doesn't work. But let's talk about Tom Pelfrey. Tom Pelfrey um, was on Guiding Light. He had a fantastic run on Cinemax's Banshee, where he played a former neo-Nazi who had turned into a cop type character like a um a white not neo-nazi so white supremacist who like basically abandoned that and became a cop so he was covered in tattoos he bulked all up it was a really good role so it was interesting to now see him in this corporate environment he's a good scenery chewer but in this one I, because the script is so lacking it didn't give him a lot to work with so what did you think of him I really liked him. Uh, he's definitely provided a lot of intensity over the 10 episodes I've seen. Um, he, you'll see where his storylines go because he he faces some issues and some problems and he doesn't necessarily communicate his issues with others. And it's part of his character's downfall um, just in terms of or not necessarily downfall, but more like a like a serious flaw that kind of holds him back um, from really going forward in his own life. Um, but in terms of my watching of Tom Pelfrey, I Daytime Confidential kind of turned me on to the idea of watching Guiding Light for the sole reason of seeing people in PPAC. So I only <laughs> saw... <laughs> I, <laughs> You're saying that as if it's a good thing. Yeah, well, no. Uh, yeah, no. No, no. I, I got to see all sorts of craziness unfold. I got to see the handy cams and the weird costumes and the the, the Popping out lighting. of bushes. Popping out of bushes. There was one scene where some woman was doing her taxes. That was a whole thing. And um, paying bills, yes. Yep, heart, uh, yep. Oh my he's gosh. Come, that... He's come a long way since then. Yeah, no, he has definitely come a long way since then and since having storylines where he's involved with his cousin and it's just kind of a thing, I guess. Um, but needless to say, Guiding Light went to some weird places. But needless to Iron say... Iron Fist goes to some very different weird places. That is also true. Um, his character is really, uh, re really doing a lot of, it's always very gripping when he's on the television screen because he, the character of war just has all of this intensity and this rage toward everything in his life. You know, he's, he snaps at his sister joy and he hates Danny and he's got this whole thing going on with his 
family and the company and just all of these different elements and they all just kind of come together and you're kind of just watching him crumble and it's super interesting to watch but in terms of the character of Danny Rand I find myself in this show as it progresses I don't know who to root for I don't know whether to root I'm not for rooting him. for him not him like it, when he came into the dojo and started telling Colleen how it was disrespectful the way her like her students were acting I just cringe so much I get why he's supposed to be this champion of Kung Lao but it just was painful and there's it and that happens from time to time and i don't discount the fact that white people might be into buddhism that totally can but when he's coming into the her dojo where she's trying to it all like it establishes that she's trying to instruct these students in ha providing a safe environment and giving them good um morals and standards by having them in there and then they are like talking or like horsing around a little bit as student young kids are about bound to do. And he comes in and makes a whole thing about it being disrespectful. I just cringed. It was painful. I, I agree 100% from, from that perspective. But as you learn more about the character of Colleen, you'll see that scene in different lights. Correct. True. But for him, at least for me, six, I'm, I think I'm on either the end of uh, five or the beginning of six. He keeps having these scenes where he's telling her how to be a Kung Fu master. Yeah, that that's and, pretty messed up. And that's part of the cultural insensitivity that people are kind of re was really wishing that they could avoid with uh, with an Iron Fist series. I was just curious, given that I'm I'm really enjoying this discussion because I something I haven't seen, but I'd seen a lot of discussion on Twitter and just trying to keep up with it, all of um, every TV show that's going on that people were not only disappointed because of, of all of these things you're saying, but given that Netflix had just put out um, two really good series in Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, that, that they would sort of stoop to this. Do you guys do you find yourself correlating those at all? I would say so. I mean, Jessica Jones definitely gave an empowerment for women. Luke Cage gave a, an empowerment for African Americans. They were people were really hoping that Iron Fist they would be able to correct the mistakes of the past and be an empowerment figure for Asian Americans, but it's it's not happening. I also think that there's an element and someone else pointed this out on one of the podcasts or reviews that I read. It feels very much like they rushed this so that they can get to the defenders because the defenders without Danny Rand, as they've established, it can't happen. So it felt, it feels like they rushed the script because there's not enough character development. They rushed the production because this show has no unique identity like each of the other three do. They just threw it all together so that they can get Iron Fist out and then they can get to the defender. So it's almost like not only is it really problematic from a cultural standpoint, it's extremely problematic from a creative standpoint because they didn't take the time to invest in it properly this show should have been at least another six to nine months before it was released and absolutely just, they should have taken the time to do do it right and it it if 
even though the show itself is slow, when you start looking at the components and like, you can literally see, well, they pulled this from this and they pulled that from that, but it doesn't fit together. You can, it, even though the show is slow, everything feels rushed from a production standpoint at least, or and creative standpoint to me. I, I agree 100%. And, but I also, I, I'm going to compliment them on one aspect and Luke, you'll probably agree with me because you really enjoy this character. When Madame Gao comes back, epic, the, love her, love the her. The whole show just becomes so bright and it gets so, so much better. So the reason why Dan is bringing this up, and Carly, I'm sh- you may be familiar with this because I know you listen to Daytime Confidential, but I am a sucker for an old diva broad, and Madame Gao yeah. in, the, in this universe is that old diva broad and she is awesome because not only is she bad because she's like the representation of the hand, but she's also sort of good sometimes and she's just awesome. So yeah, I literally got to the episodes where she, well, you start to see her face. You heard her voice early on, but you didn't see her. So you knew if you'd watched the other series, you knew who she was, but when she finally came on, she beheads some guy and then in her the, Alexis Carrington moment. Yeah. And then in the next episode, she is based. Danny Rand is challenging the hand so that he can free the daughter that the hand has kidnapped um, of the scientist who has developed this synthetic drug that isn't illegal. And so he's having to go and beat all these people. And I haven't got all the way through the trial. So I'm assuming he's going to rescue her. But she's there. She's just she's in this really white pantsuit type thing. It It's just perfect. Every single bit. So yes, Dan, I did greatly appreciate it. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, and I'm, I'm loving Claire returning as well. It's always great to see her, but she need like, I, I understand what she's doing by always like, she's saying sweet Christmas, like a lot. I understand what she's doing. And I know it's a problem that Luke isn't in this show, but can she just be Claire and not? When, when like, she when she goes, I can't believe I know more about the hand than you do because Danny, like his, he's supposed to be the weapon against the hand, but it's all mytho- like it's all legend to him. He didn't actually know they were real or that they were in New York. So he gets back, and then all of a sudden. He's discovering this and he goes, I, and she goes, I'm a nurse and I know more about the hand than you do. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have to wrap this conversation up. Uh, Carly, it has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. You're going to be back next week. Do you have any final thought real quick or thoughts real quick? I just want to thank, thank you so much for having me on. And I had a great time chatting with you guys. Dan, any final thoughts? Uh, I, hopefully this show can stick the landing and kind of dovetail into the defenders. Otherwise this is going to be a great disappointment or go, go power Rangers might be, end up being better than iron fist, which we're oh gonna my have, gosh, we're going to have to discuss oh, wait, power but, Rangers. But, but, but the power Rangers, didn't they like whitewash Rita Repulsa already? Like before even most of the casting news came out. Yes. And no, there have been, four or five different actresses to quote unquote play Rita Repulsa as a whole. One of them was uh, Hispanic American. Uh, One of them was a Jewish American woman um, who voiced her. Her name was Barbara Goodson. The other one was Carla Perez. Um, The original actress, Machika Soga, 
I'm sorry, not four or five, more like three. Um, those three actresses encapsulated the character of Rita Repulsa and all come from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and stuff like oh, that. Okay. And for them, they had to go Hollywood. And while they could have went diverse, they Elizabeth Banks is like she she's still a good actress. She brings the star power. Um, from what I hear, she destroys it in this role and she does a great job. So I have nothing but the, the confidence of, you know, it, it's going to be a good time. She's going to do a good job. OK, Carly, Carly, where can people <laughs> find you on Twitter? They can find me at Carly A. Silver, C-A-R-L-Y, letter A, and then silver like the color. Okay. Dan, um, I'm going to have to ask you where they can pe- find you because you changed your Twitter handle on me, and I don't know that I know the new one yet. I am at Real Dan Pierce. Okay. Um, on Twitter. As always, you can comment on this episode at geekconfidential.com. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash gkconfidential. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gkconfidential. I'm at Luke underscore Kerr on Twitter. We thank you for listening. Until next time, so long. Bye.